0: Good afternoon, everyone. I hope you're all having a fabulous meeting. I'm Donna Sack. I am executive director of the Illinois Association of Museums, and I also serve on the AASLH Council. And I'm a member of the Religious History Affinity Group, which is actually the sponsor of this of this particular session. And We're really excited to be having this session, especially after um, last night. Who was at 16th Street Baptist Church? Everybody. We might be. Okay, and I'm going to give some house rules, too. It's a challenging door does not want to doesn't want to stay shut, so this session is being taped, so we are going to have a q and a at the end of the session, and if you would, we have another mic in the back of the room, and if you would please if you have a question or a comment or want to be part of a conversation when we get to the end, if you would please use the other mic so that we so that we capture so that we capture that as well. So let's go back to last night. Um, I think there's something really, really powerful about hearing Carolyn McKinstry in 16th Baptist Church talking about her experiences um, there and as well as her experiences um, as she went forward in her life after a really, really um, traumatic um, Experience, and I think that the other thing for me that's so significant about Sixteenth Street Baptist Church is the fact that it's an active congregation, and that just brings a complete um, totality to that experience. And I think it's it's was a wonderful, just really a wonderful place to be yesterday, and it really um, pairs up really well with this session um, because what this session is about is the role of of the religious uh, churches and institutions in the civil rights movement. So today we have uh, two panelists who are going to tell some of that backstory um, and how how these churches were designated um, and also the role of parishioners in the civil rights movement as well. So, first, I would like to say how important religious sites are from a cultural perspective, a social perspective. When we're talking about making those connections to to history, it becomes really important because in many cases, it's one of the core um, the core reasons of why we are who we are um, as people, as communities, and as and as a nation. So. It's the opportunity to talk about the social structure of a community, to talk about the religious experience, to talk about the spirituality, to talk about the humanity of who we are. Um, and that certainly is exemplified in our, in our time here in Birmingham. So I'd like to introduce to you um, Carol Van West, who is the director of the Center for Excellence in Historic Preservation and a professor of history at Middle Tennessee State University. He is the former editor of the Tennessee Historical Quarterly from 1992 to 2010. And Dr. West was just appointed the Tennessee State Historian by Governor Bill Haslam in July. So congratulations on that appointment. Um, Dr. West also serves as the co-chair of the Tennessee Civil War Sesquicentennial Commission and the Tennessee Civil War National Heritage Area, which is a partnership unit of the National Park Service. His work landmarking African-American civil rights sites began in Haywood County, Tennessee in 1994 and has included projects and workshops in Memphis, Birmingham, Nashville, and Selma. So I would like to welcome Dr. West um, to the podium to share uh, his story. And just to let you know that Tara White, who is our other panelist, is literally on the road, in the car, on her way here. So um, we will be hearing from Tara as soon as when she gets here as well. And I will actually probably let her introduce herself so that we can keep this keep this uh, moving. Thank you, Van.
1: Thanks, Donna. Good afternoon, everyone. Uh, you know, Tara is actually on the the Selma to uh, Montgomery Trail, and then she's making her way on up here to Birmingham, so it's uh, an interesting day for her, and she'll be here soon. We've been talking with her. She uh, told me this might well happen, so we're well prepared for change And today what I want to talk about is really change and how you think about change, particularly when it comes to uh, churches in the South and the civil rights movement. Now, this has been a topic that I have been privileged by many different congregations and different groups in the South that they felt comfortable enough with me to share their story and to bring that story to my attention to share their resources, to share their anger, to share their grief, but also to share their accomplishments and sense of pride in what these places mean to history, but also means to those congregations today. And that process did start 20 years ago. And today, instead of trying to look at this whole issue of churches as safe havens for African-American community development, a process that began during the Civil War period in the South and continues till today, I've decided to just give you a snapshot of the civil rights churches, particularly here in Birmingham, but also I want to bring in some of our current project in Selma, Alabama. Now, yesterday, of course, you had the event at 16th Street Baptist Church, certainly one of the icons of the Birmingham civil rights movement. But when the community started to talk to me about their wish to develop an overall National Register of Historic Places multiple property nomination for the Birmingham Civil Rights Movement, they didn't want it just to be focused on 1963 and 16th Street Church and maybe Kelly Ingram Park across the street. They felt so many of the dominant narratives that were out there about the Civil Rights Movement and about black history in general in Birmingham, was just focused on that period, that bothered them. They wanted to take me to all nooks and crannies of Birmingham and show me places that were also very important. And I think that is one of the biggest problems that we have now in thinking about the preservation and um, landmarking of civil rights sites we do want to go for the ones that show up in the textbooks or the ones they always put on TV. But these are often the culmination points of struggles that began decades earlier and people from all walks of life and all types of congregations. So certainly we need our icons like 16th Street Baptists, but we also need to look at that bigger picture. And in fact, right next door is St. Paul United Methodist Church. Now, this is a church from the 1950s, and it's associated particularly with the ministry of Reverend Joseph Lowry. Lowry has become, in some ways, a forgotten figure of the civil rights movement. He becomes president of the Southern Christian Leadership Conference, takes it into the modern era, fulfills a lot of the goals that were created and enunciated in the 60s, but they were really accomplished in the 70s and 80s. And this is where sometimes we also want to freeze these churches in history and say that, well, their period of significance is over in 63. The story is done. We can now move on. And that's the point I want to leave with you today. The story is not done. There's still much work to do. Certainly in Birmingham, while you're here, you need to go up north of downtown and go to Bethel Baptist Church. It's in the Collegeville neighborhood It's a very simple brick church associated particularly with the ministry of Reverend Fred Shuttlesworth. Now, Reverend Shuttlesworth, a lot of people forget, had actually moved on to a church in Cincinnati to uh, accepting its call in the early 60s. He would come back to Birmingham to work with his former congregants and his friends and neighbors and allies in civil rights on the issues here in Birmingham. And that's where you have to realize it's the neighborhoods sustaining those churches. Bethel Baptist Church actually now has a new building where the congregation meets every Sunday. The old brick building that you see here from the days of Reverend Shuttlesworth is really treated as a historic site. I did have the great privilege, and it's really one of the, ultimate moments in my career of having Reverend Shuttlesworth take me through that building space by space and talk about the different types of activity that happened there. Because it was one thing that the building was often recalled for the bombing of the building. And in fact, that sort of empty lot that you see to the right of the church, well, once his parsonage stood there, and it was bombed out underneath him. He was in bed when it was bombed, and it was designed to kill him, and he emerged from that bombing, and I had not just one or two members of the congregation, but many tell me that's when they knew he was the chosen one to bring them out of this darkness and to help them achieve what they knew needed to happen there at Bethel. Now, Shuttlesworth himself never really took on that aura. He was always sort of, even in his old age, talking to me in 2000. He was uncomfortable with that. But certainly it's that symbolic meaning of the place and then the community around it that sustained that church. And I think that's also something that gets forgotten in a lot of this work about civil rights churches. Certainly they counted on great leadership, and they were brave leaders doing that work, but it was the congregations themselves that moved the, mo- the movement forward. Now, that brings us to the two icons from Selma. Brown's Chapel AME Church, you can see here in a photograph I took just a few months ago, a uh, bunch of visitors outside looking at the monument to Reverend King, staring up at those twin towers, and it is very much to so many people the recognized Selma Landmark. One of three, this church, First Baptist Church, which I'll show you in a moment, and then the Edmund Pettus Bridge. So many people think that's the story. That's where the events of Bloody Sunday took place in 1965. They chased the marchers back to this church, even rolled up those steps of that church as if they were going to enter the congregation. And that's when people came across the street from the housing project with guns and said, no, you won't or that con- that church so you know it was almost uh, a second bloodbath right there at the steps of that church, but to reduce the significance of Birmingham to those terrible momentous events of nineteen sixty five is a great disservice a deep history there and whereas we began the Birmingham Civil rights multiple study in nineteen thirty three with the decision to build Graymont Homes on Center Street as a sort of real new base for African-American activism in Birmingham. In Selma, there was no doubt. The story starts in 1865 with emancipation, the end of the Civil War, and the building of African-American churches. So this has become, we've learned a lot of lessons in doing this work from Birmingham. We're trying to put them in place in Selma and really reaching out and moving beyond these two icons, this church and then First Baptist Church, and you can see some of the guys that helped start this process down there in the bottom slide at First Baptist. This was a meeting of uh, I guess four years ago, now that I think about it. Katie Randall, who is here with me today, is in that photograph. Uh, Mary Shell from the Alabama Historical Commission is in that photograph. Uh, Tara White, who will be joining us shortly, is there, and then we're all listening, as we always have been doing now in Selma for some time, to Loretta Wimberley. Lou was uh, the former chair of the Alabama Black Heritage Council, and she was from Selma, from First Baptist Church, and had been one of the teenagers marching for civil rights there in Selma. So she wants to make sure that legacy gets recognized and doesn't disappear in her own lifetime, and certainly she wants it there for the next generation and the generations after that. So she has been our person pushing us, pushing the community. She's the chief facilitator, and I always think it's so sort of appropriate. Our first meeting took place in the basement of First Baptist Church, and so many of these Pivotal meetings didn't take place in the beautiful sanctuaries of these churches. They began in the basements themselves. And that's symbolic of what happened. They started at the ground level, they moved up, they spread, and they changed the country. Now, another thing I want to throw out there is you can look at these famous icons and think, yeah, I know the story of that church. I've seen that. This is nothing new here. Probably most of you, except for Dr. Dethrich, who worked on this project a few years ago, recognize this next building, Shiloh Missionary Baptist Church in Macon County, Alabama. But in some ways, you can say this is also a pivotal place in the civil rights movement and particularly important to this conference and some of the themes it wants to explore. This is one of the churches touched directly by the U.S. Public Health Service's syphilis study that ran in Macon County from 1930 to 1973. Now, it is sometimes known as the Tuskegee study, and it did involve Tuskegee Institute to the fact that some of the victims of the study were taken there for examination. Well, of course they were, because they couldn't be taken to a white hospital, so they took it to Tuskegee because that was the only way that was going to happen. So when the scandal broke, it became known as the Tuskegee Scandal or the Tuskegee Syphilis Study. Uh, Have no doubts, this was the federal government. This was a white-generated study, and this was known as one of the places that they called the roundups. That's what they called the people not treated by the doctors who were charged in their oath to treat these people instead they used them as living experiments. They called them roundups, where they would ask them to go meet with the doctors to receive their treatment. And under that tree, right where you can sort of see the church building, is where members of that church waited for that event. So they don't always have to be spectacular urban landmarks. Rural churches like Shiloh Missionary have a an important story to say, and an important story to tell. And again, this is uh, another just unbelievable privileged experience I had, being able to go around with members from the community, and we found 30 of the 50 Roundup places in the county. They've been determined eligible for the National Register, and many of the communities are putting up markers about that because they don't want people to forget. So again, churches both as safe havens in their historic period, but also churches as places to teach the rest of us of our past and in ways that we can't forget that past, hopefully. They play such an important role. Okay, so those are some of the big themes. I think with the, the rest of the time I have here, I just want to show you some other churches in Birmingham that we researched. Again, this is about this photo These photos are all eleven twelve years old, so they 're not as sharp as some of my earlier images because these are actually digitized prints you know back in the day when you took negatives and had prints made um, it, uh, this is when that work took place, and a lot of these churches the another thing I want to show you here these are very much not just museums they're still active shapers of their neighborhoods and their communities. And they also help us extend that civil rights narrative beyond the events of the Civil Rights Act of 1964 and the Voting Rights Act of 1965 to look at other ways that the civil rights movement was implemented. Bethel AME Church is over in Inslee. Inslee is one of the real working class neighborhoods of Birmingham all tied into the steel industry. And this is when you start to learn the other key leaders. W.E. Shortridge was really one of the key on-the-ground leaders of the Alabama Christian Movement for Human Rights, as Shuttlesworth named the organization that formed right after the Alabama Supreme Court outlawed the NAACP. They reformed into a new group. And the ACMHR, or the Alabama uh, Commission Commission, for human rights, you know, they had a tremendous influence. And what they relied on to keep group cohesion in such the sort of oppressive environment that Birmingham was at that time was mass meetings, weekly meetings at different churches. And the way we could trace where these meetings took place is a sort of odd source. Through the police records of Birmingham, because they were sure that all of these mass meetings were subversive, dangerous, and needed to be kept an eye on. So Bull Connor would send policemen to observe every meeting, take notes on who was there and who was not there, even take notes sometimes on what was being said. What is interesting when you look at these records, are all just downtown here at the public library up in the archives, is that after a while you can see the policemen got bored. And it was just sort of like, well, there were so many people and they talked about different things, and that was about it. It was like, this, these guys are just meeting and talking. You know, we're not, you know, it's very interesting to see that transition. But of course, they were suspicious. They were keeping our eyes on them. So that just gave us an independent way of verifying where these different churches were. Now, Canaan Baptist Church is one of these over in Bessemer, another one of the real steel town suburbs of Birmingham to the west here. And this is like you see in so many situations. This little corner of the city has been a sacred place for African Americans for over 100 years. They maybe have built different churches there, but it's always been the place. And in this case, the church was a meeting spot, but it was also one of the really important places to talk about implementing the civil rights movement, particularly through Reverend A.L. Bratcher. Uh, uh, creating the Community Development Credit Union. Now, this was a federal program designed to allow African-American businesses to borrow money, a way of creating capital flow in impoverished neighborhoods. And in this case, the church took on what was definitely a civic role, but, of course, churches of this type had always been active in so many different ways. This was just a more formalized relationship. So this is an argument that we have made in several cases. You have to look at these post-1965 organizations and laws and programs and opportunities as much as you do what became, what came before, because they were crucial in building up an infrastructure that made a civil rights movement not just possible, but actually something to come out of it. East End Baptist Church is over, uh, as it says, on the east end of uh, Birmingham. And this is a, a small little church, and you can see the influence of 16th Street Baptist. It's got the Twin Towers, the same sort of arched opening, but this is a much smaller church built in 47. And it was that post-World War II generation that did so much for pushing for civil rights In this town, maybe it was Angela Davis's father, a World War II veteran who just thought enough was enough. In this case, it was a congregation that built the church and hired what was then a young man, Calvin Woods, to be their minister. And they weren't real sure at first if this young guy should be allowed to do as much as he was doing. He was making them look bad. Maybe this wasn't good. He was going in jail. But as he says here... They were first sort of concerned, but then others came to the church because it was trying to make a change. And he gained more freedom to do what he thought was right and became a key part of the uh, ACMR, ACMHR leadership here in Birmingham. And I always like his quote of what these mass meetings that took place were like. Singing, praying, shouting, proclamation, inspiration, they came from each meeting. And you see that type of just, again, group dynamic so expressed in, again, 16th Street's a great example of how that could be done on a large scale. But imagine in a small church like this. And another one that I just checked on this afternoon, I didn't have time, I mean, this morning, I didn't have time to get over to East Birmingham. But First Baptist Church East Thomas is still there, still vibrant. Still sort of has that same little neighborhood setting of a little bungalow on either side of the church. And it was built before World War II, right before 39. But it does have one of the rare photographs we have of a small church and a mass meeting from 1958 taking place in it. So you can see that it might look like a small building, but you could put a lot of people on that main floor and then up in the balcony. And this is where in their annual reports it's always a good way to also measure their perspective on what the mass meetings meant and how where they were held and how many people came they reported on that too so you again have a really nice combination of records some from the Birmingham from police and some from the organization itself Metropolitan Community Church is over in the Woodlawn neighborhood and this is really a great example of a working-class church from that time did hold some meetings, not a lot, not a very large building, not a very prominent building but it becomes particularly associated when you look at the civil rights story long-term and I put this one in deliberately because in the past week the focus has been that it's been fifty years since the bombing of 16th Street Church and the trial of Robert Chambliss, the bomber, or at least one of the bombers of that church, took place in 1977, and it was the testimony of a member of this church that helped to put Chambliss in jail and to find him guilty. So their their association, they see it both ways. We were there when it was happening. We helped to end it because to so many folks in Birmingham, the story really wasn't over until that trial was over. And then in the very following year, uh, African-American mayor was elected for the first time, Richard Arrington. So we took this multiple property nomination to 1978 because of those different significant events. Okay, Mount Ararat Baptist Church, also over in the Inslee neighborhood. You can see this one from the highways you drive through Inslee. It's on a high hill. It overlooks, it was designed by Wallace Rayfield, the same architect who designed 16th Street Church. But it also shows that not all stories happened immediately. Not everybody was all of one voice, that, again, there's different variations and different uh, trends within the civil rights movement that too many people ignore. They want to find that one heroic narrative, and it's not there. It's a much more complex issue than that. And that's the case here with Mount Ararat. Now, John Glover had really been one of the voices for New Deal reform in the 30s, a big supporter of Graymont Homes and the, build, the, the building of that housing project, uh, a big voice for that the New Deal should not be a raw deal for blacks in Birmingham. But then as time moved on, he became more conservative. And after the Klan burned a cross in front of his church after some mass meetings there, He forbade the church from being the site of a meeting. He did not want it destroyed through violence, which was a logical reaction. But it infuriated a lot of young members of the congregation who then became very active marchers. And in this case, the person that always comes to my mind is Victor Blackledge. Uh, Victor was a, a city planner here in Birmingham, Uh, worked with me on the project 12 years ago, and he always talked about, well, the church leaders said no, but we knew to say yes. And they would leave this building and come downtown, because Inslee's to the east of uh, downtown Birmingham, and join the marchers and would spend time in jail, be beaten. In fact, uh, Victor always felt that, in fact, his church was signaled out for uh, being drafted and serving in Vietnam that that was one way they got rid of a lot of young people. They sent them to Vietnam, and he always felt very hard about that, not for his service to the country, but the fact that they were signaled out to go to be drafted and sent to the front lines. So again, you know, different generations are shaping the history of these buildings. New Pilgrim Baptist Church is one of the key buildings in the Birmingham Civil Rights Movement. It gets really neglected. The church itself has moved on to a new building. It's a thriving congregation, and this building is now a daycare center, and it needs help. You know, you talk, we talked some before we got started, Donna, on these key buildings that need help. This is one of these because it's hard for any congregation to maintain two buildings uh, because they struggle enough to maintain one. But Nelson Smith, known as Fireball Smith for his uh, great sermons, was the minister here, had this church that you see up in the top built, and he was such an important leader. Uh, Shuttlesworth finally gets his due uh, recognition. Uh, Fireball Smith needs that too. He's become a forgotten figure. And you can see here some of the many different meetings that took place here. And particularly to me it was important because some of the key women leaders came out of this same congregation. And Lola Hendricks served as the secretary for the ACMHR. And she was my primary source when I was doing so much of this work. She would meet me to go out and look at stuff, and it was Mrs. Hendricks, doors magically opened. She went with me to the Civil Rights Institute and picked out different types of uh, oral history interviews to pay particular attention because she was like, I know they were there and what they were doing. Uh, she passed a few years ago, but she was loved her role, thought it was important, but always wanted to be behind the scenes. But she played such a crucial role in making this church a prominent landmark now, before we turn over here to Dr. White, uh, I want to just show you though i've still have been showing you sort of large, prominent churches, another part of this that we have to keep in mind is sometimes no matter where they are or what size they are, churches can play an important role in a community's history. And that is particularly true here. Uh, I was just talking to Steve Hoskins uh, before this meeting and he was asking me, is New Rising Star Baptist Church still standing? And that's like, I haven't been to New Rising Star in a while, but I hope so. This is one of the most important buildings in the city. And it was built in 58, very, you can see, very unassuming, just a little rectangular bi- block, uh, gable roof, real simple. But Pruitt was Shuttlesworth's most trusted lieutenant. And while Shuttlesworth was in Cincinnati, Pruitt took care of matters here in Birmingham. And it was from this church that so much of that happened that Pruitt would fund things, he would go out among his congregants to raise money to post bonds for black and white students who were put into jail. I mean, he was a tireless worker for this. He died in 86. I don't think he's ever gotten the prominence he earned through his actions of the time. But you can maybe see why. This is far from 16th Street Church. You could easily pass this one by. And the same with Oak Street Baptist Church, also over in Collegeville. But what is important about this, it's a very recent building, built actually during the height of the movement activity here in Birmingham. But this was one of the first churches to really hold workshops and help to implement the Housing and Community Development Act in Birmingham. And it was these creation of neighborhood associations that still shape Life in Birmingham today that proves to be so important and these meetings took place in that sanctuary and sometimes again we want to stop in 65. I think we have to move into the 70s and look at particularly here in Birmingham the neighborhood associations as being that final major important step in the process. Now, just to end with a couple of favorites of mine, in that the stories, of course, are not just civil rights at these churches. St. Peter's Primitive Baptist Church is in Bessemer. It's over by the railroad tracks. It's sort of in the heart of Bessemer, but at the same time, you know you're in Black Bessemer and you're at the edge of town when you go to this church. But this is famous not only for the meetings that took place there. it It has a beautiful, huge sanctuary with a great sound system perfect for meetings, but it has that because it was the center of the black gospel movement here in Birmingham, and of course, the a cappella singing is so famous from here. It's one of the national treasures that comes out of Birmingham, and it came out of this church right here, and Reverend Clark was famous for his very Sunday morning sermons that they also broadcast all over the city, a first as well for Birmingham, so sometimes it's not just the movement of feet on the pavement and crossing barriers. It's the voices that are raised on Sunday morning at pulpits and in choirs across the South that really help to make a difference. Old Sardis Church, and I'm sorry, I hit some button here I wasn't supposed to hit, um, was where the movement began. And I thought, it too doesn't get much notice. It's not down around Kelly Ingram Park. It's up on 4th Street North, sort of away from downtown. But this is where the first meeting took place in 1956, attracted over 1,000 people. And from that came all of the events of 1963. Now, why do we keep on doing this work? Because there's so many important places still to be discussed and identified and preserved this is the latest project that we have done of a church in Alabama, Tabernacle Baptist Church. And You can see from the two photographs, it's beautiful. Just an absolutely stunning building from the 1910s. Why isn't this on the National Register? Well, let's see. It's a black church in Selma, okay? But also, all of the civil rights historians missed it because they were too focused on the churches on the other side of town. Why not Tabernacle. They never talked to the church. They never explored. This is where Selma's first mass meeting took place. It was where Dr. King gave his last sermon during the Poor People's March, just weeks before he was murdered in Memphis. And then it's the leadership of Reverend L. L. Anderson, who had served in the Montgomery bus boycott, was vital in the story of Selma, and vital throughout the Black Belt of Alabama in so many different ways. Because it was Anderson who went out on a little lonely stretch of the Selma to Montgomery Highway and gave a sermon one day after one of the more pivotal events of 1965. The murder of a housewife who had come down just to help demonstrators and to move marchers back from Montgomery to Selma. And she was murdered from a little AME Zion church that still stands there. Anderson went and preached her sermon. Now, Viola Luzo is not a forgotten name. But this site is not on the National Register of Historic Places. And Anderson is a forgotten name. He preached that sermon He did his part to keep her memory and her to recognize her sacrifice. And when I say that the work continues, this is what I'm talking about. It's not just the work of the civil rights activists in building a better nation. It's the work of us as historians and as preservationists, as public historians. Whatever walk of life you come from is to find these places, capture those stories, work with those communities. Because if there's tabernacle churches out there still to be uncovered, if there's places like the Luzo murder story that needs to be documented and made part of our permanent records that we can't say these events didn't happen in the future, you know, there's lots to do. And that's, I can't think of more important work for any of us to do. Thank you. Okay, next is my uh, great uh, pleasure to introduce Dr. Tara White. Uh, Dr. White teaches history at Wallace State Community College, and she's had a long career in different aspects of heritage work in Alabama and the entire eastern United States. She's a graduate of the Cooperstown Museum Program. She's a graduate of the MTSU Public History Program. She worked with the Alabama Historical Commission, and she also worked, and it's where we first met in Nashville years ago, with the American Association of State and Local History. So Tara has worked on many different projects. She's been a great inspiration to our work in Alabama and always a constant source of support, good eating, good talking, and everything that makes field work worthwhile. So with that, Tara, I'll hand it over to you.
2: I'm going to apologize for running in at the last minute um, we had a school-wide program that the president scheduled at the last minute so of course I had to attend and um, it didn't complete until about 12 so of course I had to stay until the end and um, for those folks who know um, Driving Backwoods, Alabama, as um, Dr. West knows so, so well. <laughs> and, and and Donna, that's right, because Donna and I, um, we had some adventures a couple of years ago doing that same thing. Um, it is a process. So Alabama 22 for a long while, yeah. So it is um, really good to see you guys. I'm going to transition. I was looking for another flash drive socket here, and I don't see. Let me see. I think there's one right under. Okay. There's one right under it. Let's end your show.
1: Get mine out of the way. There you go.
2: Let's see what we have here. I have a bunch of, a bunch of, sh- let me see if this is the right one. I have two that look just alike. Um, yep, I think that's, no. Birmingham, Birmingham. Uh, as you can see, I do you need Alabama some more things Black Women's to do, History. I think, you know. <laughs> So we're gonna, we're gonna make this happen, I promise. Uh, there it is, all right, thank you. Again, it is really good to be here at ASLH, my former employer. Please give my regards to the staff. Most of whom are new people, actually, right? And I'm moving slow because that's what's happening at this point in my life. You know, I'm. Okay. Gotten to the point where I need these for real. And I don't want to do it because it makes me look like a little old lady, but. Um, Hold it open. And I. Professional? no. And as you see, I do a lot of different stuff, unfortunately. Yeah. Research. Okay. I just had it. Okay, we're going to make this happen. Hold up. There's more than one way to skin a cat. That's what grandma always said. Now oh, I think Okay. What do we have going on here? Is it is it because it's old?
0: Yeah, I think that the PowerPoint version I have is too old to read the PowerPoint X file.
2: <laughs> <laughs> okay. Okay, let's see then. I have mine in my bag, actually. Oh, no, not that one. Is it a, will it take a Mac? It's not going to take a Mac, is it? I, in my dreams, right? Oh, yeah. My deepest apologies, guys. Tara and her new technology. Okay. Yeah. We'll take. Good to see you. Okay. White thing. Where's some little power? No, on the other side.
1: I think. Yeah. Not with that old projector.
2: You don't think so? Yes.
1: Now you can see uh, how many MTSU people does it take to get a computer to work. It takes three.
2: <laughs> <laughs> and, and all PhDs. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> that's right. Okay, that's your
1: any questions over what I was saying at the first? You know, sorry about the tech tie-up, but it happens. Okay, buddy's good. Everybody's good. They they're enjoying watching you suffer.
2: <laughs> I feel like a graduate student again. Um, it wasn't the neighborhoods or the community because um, because Birmingham was such a dangerous place. You know, it, and and. To put it in context, you know, people's homes were constantly being bombed. You know, we know about the 16th Street Baptist Church, right? And we know about the, the church bombing. But there were so many bombings that happened across Birmingham that the nickname for the city was Bombingham, okay? And that was not, those were not um, businesses that were being bombed. These were people's homes. So it was not uncommon, and especially since you had, um, You had uh, white flight happening in the uh, late. 40s, early 50s. Folks starting to move out into the neighborhood, out into the um, suburbs, Homewood, uh, Vestavia, Mountain Brook, all those places are starting to be um, inhabited then, right? Um, and so you, residential integration, basically, is what's happening, and, and Birmingham becomes really dangerous because these folks are trying to prevent folks from moving into and, and integrating neighborhoods. Now, Um, This was actually, so they would never have thought to involve their children in these campaigns. This was actually the ideas of um, folks from SNCC, Um, people like um, James Bevel, who uh, was, um, (laughs) if I had to characterize James Bevel, um, I'd say he was on the brink of um, brilliance and insanity right um he was yes i mean he was one of those people who was a little bit nuts right he was he was really brilliant but he was also a little bit nuts and so um bevel put it to a he 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 posed the um challenge in this way these children this is their world right you know, we are already here. We're already dealing with what is here. This is the world that they will inherit. I think they have or they should have an opportunity to be involved in shaping that world. So he took it upon himself, and and, and he and several other SNCC members actually started talking to, to high school kids and getting them involved. Um, and, and talking to high school kids because high school kids, um, their parent, you know, they couldn't get fired or they couldn't get, um, lose their house or they couldn't lose their mortgage or whatever. Right. So they had a little bit less to lose than um, the adults did. And, and that was really one of the reasons he posed this thing to them. He never, ever assumed or, or never, ever thought in his mind, never fathomed that, the white supremacists would target children, you know, and, and, and not that the children were the target at 16th street, but he never thought that anything like that could ever happen, but it was really about, Taking it to the next generation and having the next generation start to grapple with the issues of segregation, with the issues of full participation in American society, with the issues of Jim Crow in the south and so that that 's really how um, how they got involved um, and and he he had a great um, he he really had a great strategy, and the strategy was to get the most uh, popular folks involved in the movement first. So he went after the football players, the, the jocks, the cheerleaders, those guys first. And of course, in high school, high school is one big social club. So yeah, it is, unfortunately. Um, and so you go after the really important, really important people and, you know, folks with the, with more social cachet and, and, um, what we, what sociologists would say social capital, um, and you get those people involved and everybody else will follow them. And that's what happened. That's, that's pretty much what happened. That's how, um, they got involved. But, people in the movement the the adults people like um, Martin Luther King and people like um Shuttlesworth and those guys they were absolutely against the children being involved um during my um and this actually is. Worked from my master's thesis when I was at Cooperstown. Um, I did my master's thesis on women in the civil rights movement in Birmingham. And I spoke with many of those women who had been involved, women like um, Reverend Abraham Woods' wife, Marion Woods, and um, some other of the movement wives. And I talked to them about it, and they were adamantly, Mrs. Hendricks, Lola Hendricks, because her daughters had been involved, they were adamantly opposed adamantly opposed to their children being involved because th- these were their children and they knew that, um, children are innocent. Children don't know, you know, the, f- you don't want to, to, you know, and, and Mrs. Woods explained it this way. We did not want our children warped. You know, we did not want them to think that the world was like this. That everyone in the world would see them as little black children first, and then people second, right? And so um, they um, really fought it. But the children fought to to be a, be a part of it. They really um, convinced their parents that this was something that um, they had a stake in, and so they um, became involved. Because our time is so um, is is getting away from us, I'm going to go. Um, very quickly through this. Okay. And I wanted to give a little bit more context. Um, One of the things that, um, and I I think Dr. West kind of talked about this race and place in Birmingham, but um, this was a 1930 census map. Um, from the 1930 census, and you could clearly see um, where African Americans where The darkest spaces are where African Americans were um, were concentrated in in a certain track in Burm- city track in Birmingham. And um, although Birmingham is a very different city, didn't didn't exist before the Civil War, does not have that old South history, um, does not have the history of slavery, right? But as Birmingham was being founded, one of the things that Birmingham Boosters, Birmingham is being founded actually uh, at the uh, beginning of the... um, of the, of the, um, populous age, right? And uh, 1870s. Okay. And so, uh, one of the things that Birmingham boosters are in the very ed- edge of, um, reconstruction, because reconstruction was all but over in Alabama when this, this happens. And the boosters for Birmingham are very clear. They want a place. They're laying out the city because Birmingham is founded in 1871. And they want a place where white people, do not have to compete with African-Americans for labor. And this is very clearly stated in the promotional literature, in the booster literature, for the formation of the city of Birmingham. Okay, so um, the notion that um, African-Americans and whites would have to share space was, was never a part of um, the layout of Birmingham. Okay. Birmingham was conceptualized from the very beginning as a very separate and segregated place. And that, um, actually plays into the rest of its history. Okay. And so you can see by the 1930s, it's, it's really, it's a reality. It's a reality. Um, as like I said, the darkest spaces on the map are, um, places where, um, African Americans live, and the lighter spaces are, of course, places where whites live. So you have this this dichotomy, this black-white dichotomy, set up very early. Um, and Black Birmingham, because in, in spite of because of in spite of segregation, actually thrived. Um, this is the Alabama Penny Savings Bank, uh, one of the earliest um, African American. African-American banks um, in Birmingham and in America, um, actually. Um, Civil rights activism, people were, because of that um, very strict color line in Birmingham, um, you had folks who were transgressing that line very early. Um, This is (laughs) from the 1920s. um, A uh, local teacher, named Indiana Little led about 25 African Americans to the courthouse to register and of course she was arrested when she didn't leave, when she refused to leave without being registered but her point was this was immediately after um, this was immediately after um, World War One, right and so her brother had actually gone off had served in the war and they were expecting um, full citizenship they were expecting the rights to be able to exercise their right to vote when they got back. And of course um, the city uh, and county officials were not having it, so they end up um, in jail. And and there's a really big scrape, really big scrape up. She, you know, really fights the guys and that kind of stuff. Um, And you have, Birmingham is really interesting because you have um, some women who are very important to the national movement who um, interface with Birmingham very early, um, one person who is uh, really um, someone she someone needs to do a <laughs> needs to do a dissertation on her um, is Daisy Lampkin Daisy Lampkin was um, one of the um, o- um, publishers of Pittsburgh um, Courier. Um, She was very much involved with the NAACP um, as a local official and later um, on the national board. I think she ended up being one of the um, field directors or directors of branches. Um, And she precedes Ella Baker. You know, we um, folks who study civil rights history are pretty much familiar with Ella Baker. And we're familiar with Ella Baker from... Um, the 1960s, you know, from the formation of SNCC, you know, it's bigger than a hamburger, but Ella Baker had a very long and very distinguished civil rights career. Um, Barbara Hansby did this wonderful book on Ella Baker. If you've not seen it, you need to do it. You need to take a look at it. But Ella Baker actually starts to lay the tracks that later activists will, um, use in trying to penetrate the South. And Birmingham was one of her favorite places. So before um there's really any you know solid organization here, Ella Baker is in Birmingham in the thirties in Birmingham in the forties in birmingham in and and actually by the fifties she's going off the scene. but she sends her successor um into Birmingham um initially f- following her lead as director of branches and then there's a southern regional um, director's position. Um, created and she comes into that, um, and so Birmingham um, is involved as um, a one of the leading chapters of the NAACP. Um, You have the uh, vulnerable Emory O. Jackson, who is the um, publisher of the Birmingham World, a black newspaper here in um, Birmingham, who served for a long time as the director of the NAACP. And there are various women involved in the NAACP during that time. Um, Ruby Hurley actually comes in. Um, follows Ella Baker as director of branches and establishes the regional, the Southeastern Regional Office for the NAACP established in Birmingham in 1951, in Birmingham. And I think that has a lot to do with the, <laughs> my next bullet, which is the um, in the outlawing of the NAACP in, um, from practicing in the state of Alabama in 1956. Um, Of course, the Alabama Christian movement is founded immediately after um, the NAACP is um, outlawed. Um, And this is a picture of Arthurine Lucy Foster, um, who, with the help of the NAACP, is uh, actually um, integrates the University of Alabama in 1956. And it's important to note that some of the players who are involved with the NAACP, a few of them, Fred Shuttlesworth is actually one. He's membership, um, one of the membership directors of the NAACP. Another person, though, who's involved with the NAACP and who actually influences Fred Shuttlesworth is a woman named um, Lucinda Roby. Okay, and it is Lucinda Roby who has um, started as the Youth Council Director for the state of Alabama before the NAACP is outraged, outlawed in the state. And she's the Youth Council Director for Birmingham. So she's influencing Arthurine Lucy and her friend Polly Myers, who are NAACP members at Miles College, right, before they go off and do this. Okay, it is also um, Lucinda Roby um, who is uh, collecting money. Once Arthurine decides she's going to college and the NAACP is going to fund it, they send Lucinda Roby the money, right, to help fund um, Mrs. Lucy at the time, Miss Lucy's um, 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 tuition for the university. Mr. Roby, Lucinda Roby's husband, Bruce Roby, drives Arthurine Lucy down to the University of Alabama every single time, every single time, okay? All righty. Black women in the Alabama Christian movement, because as the um, NAACP moves off the scene, the Alabama Christian movement actually is the only movement organization in the city, okay? And um, the majority of them are female and Baptists. And what is this a mirror of? It's a black Baptist church, right? Black Baptist church and um, majority working class and um, the the uh, Alabama Christian movement for all intents and purposes take pretty much takes on the character of the black Baptist church. If you go into a mass meeting, it's like going to church. You know, there were folks in my interviews, there were women who said, you know, if I miss church on Sunday, I just went to mass meeting. You know, it was the same thing. You know, you had a sermon, you had some singing, they took up an offering, you know, somebody got happy. Um, yeah. Right. The only thing that was different was you had the Birmingham cops. Right. You always had a couple of cops there um, recording the meeting because that's exactly what happened. Um, Birmingham police officers um, showed up to the mass meetings to actually record them. Um, Now, um, one thing that's different... From the majority of the other meetings and uh, um, movement organizations, I'm going to talk about women for second and other organizations, women in Montgomery, for example, majority of the women who were involved in Montgomery were middle class, educated, um, professional women. Um, and these, the, the primary organization, of course, being the Women's Political Council in Montgomery, uh, and then later, um, the Montgomery Improvement Association, um, in Tuskegee, five minutes, okay, Tuskegee Civic Association, again, educated women, um, in Tuskegee, um, primarily Tuskegee Institute, um, professionals, professors, faculty. Um, most of these women were working class. These were your um, domestics, these were your um, uh, you know, folks who worked for other people. Um, these were your um, folks who did not have um, a four-year college education for the most part, okay? Um, local principal Lucinda Brown Roby was one of the few educators involved, and this was not the movement where you had a lot of educators involved um, because of rec- fear of recriminations. Okay, um, several women held leadership positions. Um, of course, Lucinda Roby was assistant secretary and a founder. She is one, the only woman on the founding documents for the Alabama Christian Movement. Lola Hendricks, who Dr. West has mentioned already, um, Ruth Bearfield Pendleton, once there's a, a central group, the Central Committee Secretary, um, Dester Brooks, who was a local businesswoman, flower shop owner, um, she's there. And then Georgia Walker Price, who was also another executive board member. So you had several women who were in key Um, leadership positions, Um, uh, and although you never saw these women in public, because if you look at the literature, you don't see this face, right? You don't see this face. Um, Roby was, um, she was the end-all be-all as far as civic involvement and um, NAACP um, involvement prior to her um, helping to found the Alabama Christian Movement for Human Rights. Um, Roby was a stalwart, continued with the not only the Alabama Christian Movement, but the NAACP after the, um, after the NAACP was reinstituted. Um, there were other, many other women, many other women. Like I said, um, women's involvement with the movement looked like the Black Baptist Church. You had Lola Haynes Hendricks, Desta Brooks, the wife of Reverend Abraham Woods, Marion Woods, Georgia Price. Um, And then these two women, Ruth Bearfield Pendleton and Adine Drew, once the middle class actually became involved with the civil rights movement, because they did come, but they only came after King came in 62. You have these two women here. Um, And last but not least, you had Mamie Brown Mason and Cleo Kennedy. And this movement, because it, it was just like church, Um, was really, um, they were um, really good at getting the cultural element of the movement involved. And so they used the movement choir to actually, um, you know, get the troops um, aroused. They used the movement choir to raise money. And they used the movement choir as um, ambassadors for the movement in Birmingham. I'm going to stop here because... I, I've I've run over and out of time. Um but I wanted to I'm gonna wrap up. <laughs> I wanted to Note that um, although you see, you know, the very brave and very courageous Fred Shalesworth, you see people like Colonel Stone Johnson, um, Nelson Smith, um, Edward Gardner, um, Reverend Woods, you know, all of these men, that the women were there. They were involved, they were critical to the movement, and the success of the 1962 campaign would not have happened had the women not been there. I'm done. (laughs) Because my presentation was so short, do you have any questions that are specific to the women or women's role in this, in the Birmingham movement? Yeah, no, maybe you're ready to go to the next thing. Okay. Well, it was thank you for your forbearance and um, for being a great audience. It's great to see you, and um, we are done. Donna?
0: Thank you very much for attending this session. We want to encourage you to get out to see um, other sites in Birmingham if you have time to take some walks. Uh, go ahead and hop on the quarter. A trolley and just get off and do a little bit of walking and i think that you may find um, you may find yourself passing by um, some sites that are uh, important that you should know about so thank you